Support for Unscripted comes from the Institute of International Humanitarian Affairs at Fordham University. This spring, they're offering online humanitarian training courses. Topics include cash, commodities, and services in a humanitarian response, managing or negotiating humanitarian responses, and more. Courses run from March 16th through April 25th. Or earn an international diploma in humanitarian assistance. It's a four-week intensive taught by practicing humanitarian professionals in New York City from May 31st through June 27th. For more information, email miha at fordham.edu. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion. And welcome to Unscripted. Today... Americans at the UN present and potentially future. The Security Council considers President Trump's peace plan for Israel and Palestine. And we look at what the U.S. Democratic Party presidential candidates think of the United Nations. This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. Hi, how are you? Hi, good morning, how are you? It's good to see you. You know, what we're really supporting at the moment is having the two parties at the table together and be able to discuss how we can best facilitate this plan. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a vision. It's not a deal. It's an opportunity. And I think today was the beginning. So thank you very much. Thanks. The voice you just heard is Kelly Kraft, the U.S. ambassador to the U.N. after a Security Council meeting on the Middle East. Because today we're looking at the key moments at the UN since President Trump's so-called peace plan, or the Middle East plan, was announced in late January to end the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. President Trump's son-in-law and advisor, Jared Kushner, came to New York to sell his plan to the Security Council, while Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas also visited the UN a few days later to reject it. Right. And I met with one of our colleagues in the UN press corps, Al-Arabi reporter Nabil Abisab, who followed this file very closely to help us make sense of what happened behind the scenes and in the Security Council. I mean, one ambassador was even recalled by his capital over this. So it's been a tense few days, as it often is when the council is discussing this specific issue. Stephanie, let's hear your interview. So, Nabil, you're originally from Lebanon, and you work for Al-Arabi, a London-based TV channel. And you've been covering the aftermath of the release of the United States Middle East plans. Uh, And you are also one of the first reporters to report the dismissal of the Tunisian ambassador throughout the process. So I imagine you have a lot of sources, especially in the Arab world. What was the overall reaction when the plan was presented? President Abbas rejected it entirely and considered it to be an Israeli plan that was adopted by the U.S. administration. It was interesting to see that President Abbas made a speech on the same day and there was representatives uh, for uh, all or most of the Palestinian parties, including Hamas and Jihad. And that was unusual gathering or scene to see all of them on TV. And he also mentioned some measures that would be taken by the Palestinian Authority. 
including the reconciliation with Hamas, but also another plan to approach the international community, including the Security Council. The Palestinian division, we haven't seen both parties on the same page or in the same position about anything in the last 10 years. So it was interesting to see that Hamas, Jihad, and uh, the Palestinian Authority joining together in one position against this plan. I think it's also important to highlight some or main uh, Arab countries' reactions. The main players here can say the Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Morocco has always been also involved in the peace process. They express their full support to the Palestinian rights, but in the same time, they appreciated the effort of the U.S. administration and encouraged uh, the engagement in direct talks. And the Arab League, in their statement, they supported fully the Palestinian rights and the leadership of uh, President Abbas. Uh, at the same time, it did not mention that the Arab group will table a resolution or draft resolution in the Security Council. So this detail, we will see that one of the consequences later put maybe Tunisia as one member state in the Arab League under more pressure in its motion in the Security Council. So not long after Jared Kushner visited members of the Security Council to sell his plan here in New York, he only talked to six reporters, and I think you are not one of them. Uh, but can you tell me what was the general feeling among, you know, the press corps here and diplomats for his presentation? What came from that briefing that Mr. Kushner held with the Security Council members and the briefing with journalists after, he was very confident about his plan. His position was very clear that diplomacy and efforts should now cut with everything happened before and start a new phase in the peace process based on this plan. It was interesting to see how much confident he was about his plan, non-apologetic about saying that everything else now doesn't matter. Let's start a new phase and this is the plan, let's deal with it and Palestinians should take it very seriously. It was telling after that day that the plan was not only a maneuver from the U.S. It became very clear how serious the United States is about the plan and how much effort they are ready to put behind it to promote it, to defend the plan. It most likely will have uh, consequences on the ground, but also in the diplomatic arena. So following that meeting, there was a resolution that was being negotiated within the council related to the plan that was in the work. Uh, can you tell me what that resolution was about and who were sort of leading uh, the negotiations? From the language that was included in that first draft resolution was very strong and it reflected the Palestinian position on the plan. It mainly regretted the plan that was presented, and I quote, by the U.S. and Israel. So according to that draft resolution or first language, the plan was not only American, but was also Israeli. This is in contrary with what the U.S. has been saying, that this is a plan that was written by the U.S. And this language was changed 
later during the negotiations process on the draft resolution. And also the first draft resolution reiterated its call for just and lasting peace on the basis of uh, Security Council previous resolutions, including 2334. 2334 was adopted before Trump administration took office. It was about the Israeli settlements and that settlements are illegal and they shouldn't be taken as a a legal situation in the Palestinian occupied territories. It it rejected it completely. It was in the last few days of Obama's administration. Back to this draft resolution, of course, it mentions the final status uh, issues, including the borders of uh, 1967, East Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine, and the two-state solution, two states living side by side in peace and security. Also, the draft resolution talked about that any annexation of occupied Palestinian territory should be considered illegal and it shouldn't be recognized by member states of the UN and the international community. The resolution was presented by Tunisia and Indonesia, but I heard from many diplomats that it was drafted by the Palestinian mission in the UN. But the negotiations uh, around this resolution were, the least we can say, uh, from what we've heard, very tense. And so what would you say in the resolution was contentious? I think the elements that I just talked about now, they are all problematic, right? Because if we follow this, the process that took place in the council, there was what I can call a counter-draft resolution. It was basically the American amendments on the draft resolution, but it came out to be a completely different draft resolution. The U.S. amendments, or what diplomats say that these are the U.S. amendments, basically dropped everything related to uh, previous resolutions on the peace process, everything about uh, 1967 borders, everything also about uh, East Jerusalem as the capital of Palestine state. It did not mention the U.S. by name, but it said that the Security Council notes that the initiative departs from the internationally endorsed terms of reference and parameters, but shares the aim of achieving a just, comprehensive, and lasting solution to this conflict. So the negotiations were so tense that it even led to one ambassador losing his job. And as I said before, you were one of the first reporters to uh, find out about this. So can you sort of walk me through about like how you learned about this and then, you know, what you sort of found out happened? When Mr. Kushner was here in town and when he met Security Council members in the U.S. mission on the 6th of February. Journalists were waiting outside of the U.S. mission for him and council members to come in and also after to come out and comment on the meeting. The Tunisian ambassador did not attend the meeting himself. It was his deputy who represented Tunisia. I was surprised actually to see his deputy coming to the U.S. mission because Indonesia was represented by its ambassador. And Tunisia and Indonesia are the co-drafters, supposedly, to the draft resolution. So I started 
asking, calling, and texting people who may know about the negotiations on the draft resolution. It took me maybe one and a half hours until I heard first from a source that he received a call from his capital and he was recalled to Tunisia. I took my time until I reported that because I tried my best to be accurate about it until I heard the same uh, information or very similar information from two other sources. And the next day I heard that some security members were already aware that Mr. Kushner had planned to call senior officials in Tunisia and other countries in the Security Council. I did not receive any confirmation or information that Mr. Kushner did indeed made that phone call to Tunisia, but at least this was part of the expectation. It seems that the draft resolution was not coordinated well before it was circulated in the Security Council within the Arab group uh, because the Arab League decision or statement did indeed support the Palestinian right. Um, so the resolution didn't make it to the 24 hours deadline to be presented to the Security Council, allegedly for lack of support. Do you sort of have the same information and do you know why specifically it didn't make it on time? We can talk here about the substance and the draft resolution itself and about the timing. Obviously, uh, the substance itself was good enough to reach some support in the council. I'm not sure if they would get 14 votes in favor, but I think it was good enough to negotiate and to find a common ground with a majority in the Security Council. But the timing, I think, was the issue. And it seems that the Palestinians decided to postpone this motion because President Abbas was here and because maybe it was too risky to have the president in the Security Council and on the same day to vote on a resolution that would not get enough support or strong support. And because also the Palestinians know that this is not the end of the game and anything is possible after the Israeli elections on the 3rd of March and that Israel could potentially annex the West Bank or the land that was given to Israel according to the American plan. So now let's go to Abbas's visit to the council that you're talking about. I think when he was there, he repeated lines that is said before, definitely, in his council speech. But is there anything he said or the way he acted that sort of stood out for you? Was there anything different? Well, I mean, it was very obvious that President Abbas was completely against the plan. But in the same time, he tried to put something on the table. He did not come here only to reject the plan. So he talked about what can be a counter plan that includes direct talks, but under the auspices of any international umbrella that does not leave the process under the auspices of the U.S. only. Also, he sent a message to the Israelis. He also needs a partner in the Israeli side. And also, he called on the Security Council to be more involved in uh, the peace process. And what about uh, what other countries said? Maybe let's talk a little bit specifically about Israel, you know, who said they did not want to engage with Abbas at all. 
and you know maybe some of the permanent five members what did you think if anything was interesting for you the same way mr abbas talked about his need for a partner on the israeli side the israeli ambassador said that abbas is not a partner for a peace plan but i think he went beyond the usual language i saw it in some reports that it was as if israel is calling for a regime change <laughs> in the palestinian uh, authority you know the israeli ambassador in the security council always targets abbas personally and accuses abbas of supporting terrorism and uh, he always says that abbas is responsible of uh, the failure or not moving forward in the peace process the p5 i think the uk's position was a good indication that the palestinian draft resolution was not supported enough to get 14 votes in favor in the security council the uk statement was an indication that the uk was open to consider the us plan as a starting point to resume direct talks other p5 members france position was clear that france was ready to support the palestinian draft resolution after it was amended russia and china were negative about the plan i remember that the russian ambassador said that in order for the plan to lead to direct talks again it should be accepted by the palestinians first and then you know as you mentioned uh, after the security council meeting uh, president abbas held a press conference next to former israeli prime minister ehud olmert uh, what kind of message does it send you think and what's the fin- significance of this it it seems that each one of them wanted uh, to send a different message <laughs> from this uh, meeting uh, mr abbas made himself clear that there is no partner in the current government for peace but there are politicians in israel who can be or could be partners and he gave mr olmert as an example because he had engaged with him before on peace talks for mr olmert he did not reject the american plan in the contrary he considered it a good plan and he decided also not to criticize the us administration or the israeli government but maybe it was a good opportunity for him to be in the picture again in israel where do you do you see this going if anywhere uh, what do you think are the next steps for trump's plan and for maybe do you think you see a renewed interest for negotiations on this issue in general I also heard from some diplomats that Trump administration proved to be pragmatic and Mr Abbas maybe responded to this intention in Washington that he is ready to engage in direct talks if there is a credible Israeli partner. So I think what we should be waiting for now is the Israeli elections. and we will see how it goes after the israeli elections what decisions this government will take when it comes to annexation in the west bank or taking any such decisions it doesn't look like the palestinians will push for another vote in the security council anytime soon diplomats say that they are still engaged in discussing the draft resolution but i don't expect it to come anytime soon to the council Great, thank you so much for being with us Nabil. Thank you so much. 
We'll be right back. Support for Unscripted comes from the Partnership for Transparency, a group of volunteer international development specialists. They work to advance good governance in developing countries by supporting civil society organizations. PTF believes governments alone can't be expected to stop corruption. Their latest research shows that well-designed, citizen-led programs to strengthen transparency and accountability can produce better outcomes than state-led initiatives. PTF's report has practical recommendations for how empowered, engaged, and professional non-government actors can advance Sustainable Development Goal 16. To read the report or learn more about PTF's work, visit ptfund.org. Now, back to the show. So President Trump's Middle East peace plan is being actively debated in the international community and within American political circles. President Trump is up for re-election this year, and the U.S. is in the midst of a Democratic primary to select a nominee to run against him in November. Ahead of Super Tuesday on March 3rd, we wanted to know what the Democratic presidential candidates think of the United Nations and other foreign institutions like NATO, as well as the candidates' foreign policy plans. So we talked to Jeffrey Laurenti, a past Blue contributor and a former senior fellow on international affairs at the Century Foundation in New York. Laurenti worked on a one-of-a-kind piece, examining the candidates' positions on a wide array of foreign policy issues. You can read the story on PassBlue.com. Let's hear the interview. I'm with Jeffrey Laurenti, whose work different roles as Director of Policy Studies at the United Nations Association of the United States, and also as Director of Foreign Policy Program at the Century Foundation. He also served on uh, the Foreign Policy Advisory Group to Democratic presidential candidates John Kerry and Barack Obama. And he is also a past blue contributor. Hi, Jeffrey. Hi there, Stephanie. So I think a good starting point would be to have a brief look at how the U.S. foreign policy has changed when it comes to international organizations and multilateralisms under Trump. How would you summarize it? Well, we've had periods of oscillation in the past when you've had more conservative Republican administrations in Washington. And Reagan's time was a rocky time for U.S.-U.N. relations. And uh, George Bush's, the junior George Bush's time, was also rocky because he seemed to challenge the very fundamental premises of the UN's collective security role, dismissing the UN as a, quote, humanitarian organization. But all of these still operated within broad parameters of being part of the UN system. Donald Trump is uh, taking us back to the pre-1941 days of America First, the cry of the isolationists on the eve of the United States being brought into the Second World War. And making America great again has really involved a fundamental challenge to the international system. Ironically, President Trump was at the United Nations last fall warning the rest of the world that, quote, the future does not belong to globalists, end quote, it was in front of the General Assembly, 
uh, that President Trump uttered his famous claim to having accomplished more in public life in his two years in office than any other president in American history, and the entire General Assembly Hall erupted in derisive laughter. Uh, so in a sense, this is not favorable ground for him, and you see it in what his actions have been. He not only has threatened to pull out of NATO if the other member states don't up their contributions to the U.S. prescribed 2% goal, but he has pulled out of UNESCO. He has abandoned the U.S. seat on the U.N. Human Rights Council. He has shut down the World Trade Organization's appellate body for impartial adjudication of trade disputes. He has withheld money on paying UN peacekeeping dues. He has renounced the Paris Climate Accord. He has renounced the nuclear arms control agreements first on Iran that have been ratified by the UN Security Council. Uh, and he has pulled out of the intermediate nuclear forces agreement that had been negotiated bilaterally by Reagan with uh, then General Secretary Gorbachev of the Soviet Union. He has threatened war against North Korea. He has threatened to destroy the Iraqi economy if the Iraqis have the effrontery to ask the United States troops to leave. And he famously threatened to bomb and annihilate important Iranian cultural sites even after allies had warned that would be a war crime. He's revoked visas from international criminal court officials coming into the U.S. to report to the U.N., and he's blocked Iran's foreign minister from coming to the United Nations in New York. All of these are major challenges to that entire fabric of international law and international institutions. So I think that was a good starting point to look at. And now maybe taking this information, you know, and looking at the, the democratic race right now to find a candidate. So one will assume that they would sort of look at what President Trump has done at the UN and sort of come up with their own plan. But when looking at your story, I think what really comes up very quickly is that you seem to really sort of struggle to find information about the UN. So can you sort of walk me through what was the process of trying to find information on different uh, candidates' position? Certainly, Stephanie, this is not because the public is trying to force the candidates to say what their positions are in the UN, and they're trying to avoid answering that. Nobody asks about it. In all of these town halls that the various Democratic presidential candidates have organized in Iowa, for instance, only 5% of questions dealt in any way with foreign policy other than the climate court, and none of them was about the UN specifically. So it's, you don't have public pressure on them uh, to talk about foreign policy at all. And in the elite circles of the American foreign policy conversation, uh, such as at the Council on Foreign Relations, their questions almost never deal with the UN, or for that matter, NATO, except as seeking a pledge that they are going to stick by NATO and its commitments. So you have to go through what their responses are to specific foreign policy issues to see whether they acknowledge that there is an international organization dimension and how they see their policy coordinating with other international partners, if at all. So 
you are trying to tease out of chance remarks, a, a stray comment in the debates, for example. Candidate Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, spoke about nuclear weapons and the need to declare no first use operating doctrine, that if you don't say that we won't be the first to use them, people always have doubts about your intentions. And no one else on the debate stage responded to that with any comment about nuclear weapons. So it's the sound of one hand clapping. But I think that we have been able to tease out enough that those who parse the tea leaves carefully can detect not so subtle differences of direction. But let's begin by saying they're all different from Trump. So maybe before looking at the differences, are there any issues or any specific position that all of them agree on that what needs to change in terms of U.S. foreign policy right now? They all agree that the United States has to work with its traditional allies in traditional fora, so that would include NATO and the United Nations, and try to forge a, some kind of collective response to problems. Now, you have some problems like climate change uh, where it is impossible to act unilaterally in a constructive way and expect a, a changed outcome. But there are others, such as the question of Iran's nuclear program, where you can be tempted to go your own way, as Trump has. All of them have said they want to go back to the so-called Iran nuclear deal, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. If possible, that's a big question mark, you have all of them agreed on going back into the Paris Accord on climate. You have some differences in terms of outbidding each other in terms of how far the United States should commit to undertaking action to achieve those goals or even to go beyond those goals. Uh, there's general agreement on getting U.S. forces out of Afghanistan, but they all qualify them to some degree or other. So I think you have broad areas of agreement, but there is still enough distinction among them and particularly on that touchstone issue of use of force. And as I mentioned with regard to Senator Warren's observations on nuclear weapons policy, that do warrant careful examination. And in this paper, I did not even deal with Israel-Palestine, which is another big concern of the international community at large, even though Washington has come to see it as its own private preserve. So I think one thing you mentioned is, you know, when it comes to Frank's policy, candidates seem to be more focused on military deployment than anything else uh, in Afghanistan and Iraq, for example. Uh, why? How would you explain that? Is it something that maybe is more relatable because, you know, everybody sort of knows somebody who's been deployed um, to the American people? I would actually say that most people, certainly in the foreign policy community, don't know anybody who's been deployed. What makes Buttigieg stand out is that he actually did service time in the military on the ground in Afghanistan, and nobody else has been there in that capacity, certainly among presidential candidates, but also among most congressional candidates, too, it seems. Those wars nonetheless weigh heavily on the American public. Once you ask Republican voters what they really thought of the war that out of loyalty to their president, George W. Bush, they had supported. It turns out they were sick and tired of those wars. And that's something that you hear among the Democratic candidates now. Now, Obama had begun a process of measured stepping back from these situations. 
Afghanistan remains a kind of troublesome issue precisely because Democrats, all of the candidates, it seems, are unable to say we're prepared to let the Kabul government go down the drain and let the Taliban just have free reign in Afghanistan again. And yet they all feel a pressure to say that we're going to pull our combat troops out. Well, Barack Obama pulled out the combat troops. You have special forces that back up the Afghan forces, and you have air power that has been used increasingly promiscuously by the Trump administration as a substitute for boots on the ground. Um, But you don't have combat forces on the ground, but the pressure is strong to wash our hands of Afghanistan. President Trump is also struggling with that. I guess the one question that we sort of all want to know, (laughs) who would you say is the candidate that so far has the most comprehensive plan when it comes to foreign policy and has talked the most about the United Nations and international organizations? Well, the candidate who has the most comprehensive plan for foreign policy, the, the biggest overarching vision is perhaps ironically Donald Trump. That is, he sees a world essentially pre-1914 of nation states, get rid of these globalists and all the global only of international law and organizations. Raw power is the reality of life between states. It is one that is soundly rejected by most of the rest of the world. In terms of a, a foreign policy vision, perhaps the most comprehensive and synthesized vision is that of Elizabeth Warren, because she attempts to integrate the trade side, which she recognizes as crucial for Democratic Party prospects and working class prospects uh, in American society with the security, with the international value side. And while other candidates uh, deal with those in their separate stovepipes, as it were, she has done the most interesting effort at trying to stitch them all together as part of one fabric. But foreign policy visions do not usually work out in a comprehensive way. Now, it's not to say that Biden or Buttigieg or others don't have visions. Joe Biden is looking to revive the democracy promotion cause that had been much in fashion in Washington during the Bush years and then faded a bit during Obama's time. And he promises to summon a global summit on democracy. Buttigieg talks about going into conflict situations only with a very high bar of international agreement or at the highest bar unilaterally. But he keeps that door open and is not specific about what that bar entails. And Klobuchar appears to see reviving reliance on these international institutions is the medium through which foreign policy would be conducted, but is not itself a vision. When you are working on this piece, is there one policy or one position that stood out for you that you were like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't expect that. What one found most interesting was that the UN, to the extent it flickered at all, was the touchstone of Bernie Sanders in particular. Sanders, in fact, concluded his questionnaire 
uh, from the Council on Foreign Relations, which didn't ask anything about international organizations, with what would almost be an Eleanor Roosevelt hymn to the importance of the UN. And allow me to read Sanders' remarks here. It is fashionable to bash the UN which can be an effective bureaucratic, too slow or unwilling to act, even in the face of mass atrocities. But to see only its weaknesses is to overlook the enormously important work the UN does in promoting global health, aiding refugees, monitoring elections, and doing international peacekeeping missions. Among other things, all of these activities contribute to reduce conflict to wars that don't have to be ended because they never started. It's as if he has ripped this out from an old UNA piece of literature, and nobody else has delivered that full-throated defense of the UN, although it is implicit, and several of them talking about the collective security structures since 1945. Warren has talked about the UN Human Rights Council and advancing LGBTQ rights through the UN. None of the others has mentioned that in publicly available records. Joe Biden, as I say, is talking about a summit of democracies and talks about the importance of funding peacekeeping. Joe Biden's problem is that as somebody who's been on the, in a leading role in American foreign policy from his Senate days for decades, he's made a number of votes and taken a number of actions. The Helms-Biden restrictions on financing the United Nations as one case, as having shaped the authorization for the invasion of Iraq in the Senate in 2002 is another, that allow him to be attacked as having been too much a part of the Washington consensus. And Biden's campaign, essentially, is a restoration of what was before Trump came in, which may be what the nation needs, and maybe it's the most electable, within quotation marks, among the Democratic candidates, but it doesn't set many Democrats' hearts beating faster. And the fact is that their primary electorate right now, Democratic voters, are overwhelmingly favorable to the UN, save for one constituency, those Democrats who have a very strong attachment to Israel who see the UN as an impediment to that. But generally, the UN is well regarded by Democrats. So the caution about breathing those words seems a bit overdrawn for some of the more so-called centrist candidates. So that's all the time we had. Thank you so much for being with us. And let's hope that once the party makes a decision, we'll have a little more information about how it's going to approach the UN. We have many millions of votes to be cast before we will know who that one will be. That's it for our show. This episode was produced by me, Casey Candela, and reported by Stephanie Filion with help from Brianna Lyman for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulcie Leimbach is our editor. AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted. And Pass Blue is covering the important news, from women's rights to human rights to the Trump effect on the UN. For day-to-day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, 
go to passblue.com. Pass Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Pass Blue's website and click donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends. 